Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Good to see you. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And in this podcast, a good hard look at the Supreme Court. You know, as recently as last year, the Supreme Court was one of our most trusted institutions, the one body we could count on to operate totally outside of politics for the good of all Americans, as spelled out in the Constitution. Uh, yeah, no longer. Today's court is dominated by six political hacks whose sole mission is not to serve the general public, but to serve the Republican Party, to roll back the clock on all the progress made in advancing constitutional rights over the last 50 years, and to force on this country an extreme right-wing political agenda. And all that was evidenced by last year's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade and last week's ruling against affirmative action, gay rights, and student loans, all of which have prompted a lot of new demands for changes in the makeup and operation of the court. Changes which are nothing new to today's guest, legal expert Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation magazine and host of the brand new podcast, Contempt of Court. Mistal's been calling on these reforms in the Supreme Court for years. Hello, Ellie Mistal, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me back, Bill. So I saw someone, uh, let's start Let's start talking about the Supreme Court. I saw someone yesterday remark, I think it was a letter to the editor, actually, in the New York Times, uh, that the three most dangerous words in the English language today, after last week, are six to three. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree? I mean, it's pretty scary, huh? It's been that way since the moment uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Um, um, a lot of things that have happened over the past uh, year, um, so the end of this term and the end of last term, are things that I saw coming uh, uh, long before uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and knew were going to happen um, mm. the minute that I heard the news that she had passed away. I, I audibly, when I read that uh, uh, back in the day, I audibly yelped. Uh, because I knew that affirmative action would be gone. Um, I knew that um, uh, Roe v. Wade would be gone. Um, these are things that the conservatives have planned for a generation. And uh, now they're getting to do what they want. Right. Uh, and in fact, um, it, it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, that we have a new p- political power, right, in this country. It's, it's a group of unelected um, men and women right, who have a right-wing political agenda, and unlike the Congress, Republicans in Congress, they've got the votes to get it done, and they're determined to do it. Yeah, I guess my only pushback would be, I don't know that it's new. I think that Ah, the the Supreme Court has always been a political institution. Um, It's not been covered like a political institution for most of its history, but it's always acted politically. Um, And I think that people have erred in not fighting politically for control of the court, 
like the Republicans have. Like the Republicans understood that there were things that they wanted that they could only get done by controlling the Supreme Court. And so they put in place a plan for a generation to take mm-hmm. control of the Supreme Court, not just in terms of like winning elections and, and appointing justices and that kind of thing. In terms of kind of strategic retirements, that was a big part of their their plan. But yeah. Bill, it was also to, and I think this is what you know people are reacting to nowadays, it was also to create a certain kind of conservative Supreme Court justice who would do the things that the Republican Party wants them to do, right? If you go back, and right. I, I've said this before, yeah. if you go back 30 years, you know, if you go back to Planned Parenthood to be Casey, um, Roe v. Wade was upheld 30 years ago, 1992, uh, uh, um, at the Supreme Court, five to four, on a court that was eight to one Republican appointees versus Democratic appointees. Wow. Wow. And the difference between 30 years ago and today is that the Repub- the kinds of justices Republicans appointed 30 years ago still fundamentally cared about practicality, cared about enforceability, cared about the way their decisions would impact people on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's why conservatives would lose some of these extremist cases in front of the Supreme Court, even when they had a Republican majority on the Supreme Court. So what the Republican Party did, what the Federal Society did, what, you know, Leonard Leo is so uh, um, uh, evil genius good at is identifying, training and picking a breed of conservative judge who would not care about practicality, right? Who would not care about how their decisions impacted real people, who would straight up lie about the facts of certain cases and the and the procedural history that got them there. All of these extremist decisions start with a core level of impracticality, and that's the difference between now and 30 years ago, and that's why the conservatives are winning all of these battles, because they have justices who are not only conservative, not only Republican, but actively disregard practicality. And also actively seeking cases, right, that will, um, that, you know, that fit their agenda, if you will, right? I mean, yep. They're, yep. They're looking, I mean, for case, they're looking for cases, they're accepting cases, and they're ruling on cases uh, with a deliberate political agenda. That's the best way to explain the end of this past term. It's, you know, the, the big cases uh, that two of the three yeah. big cases that came down in the last week, um, these were fake cases. These were these were these were kind of made up issues um, right. that were designed to allow the Republicans on the Supreme Court to to achieve their political victories and, and their ideological victories. Um, those cases were, were were set up for conservative wins as opposed to dealing with real facts on a real ground that affects real people. What? So let's take one of them, for example, just to start with the Colorado case where uh, the woman, right, didn't want to have to design a website for a gay couple, right? Had, she, had never desi- she had never designed a website in her life or been asked to, and the person that she quoted or named hadn't even asked her to. And yet yeah, it didn't stop the court, did it? Is the definition of a fake case. Article 3 of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court is supposed to only hear cases and controversies. That's, that has been interpreted to mean 
there has to be a real case with real people who suffered real harm that the court can really address. That's the point of Article 3. Um, and the court just straight up ignored it. Um, instead of, of, of taking a real case, they took this hypothetical case with a, with a woman, with a, with a woman who wanted to be bigoted in the future. I mean, that's the best way to describe it, right? Like she, she dreamed about one day running a bigoted business, um, that had a sign out front of the, the store, um, no gay couples allowed, right? That's, that's what she dreamt up in her kind of, uh, cockled heart. Um, the court could have easily said um, this case uh, lacks the legal jargon term is ripeness. Um, and mm-hmm. it kind of means what, what it sounds like, kind of means what it connotates, right? It, it means the case is not ready for judicial review because, as you point out, Bill, she had no business. She had no customers, right? Yeah. But instead, the court uh, uh, took a, a, a series of hypotheticals and stipulations um involving essentially allowing her to set the terms of her own hypothetical case and then ruled on that hypothetical case in a way that damages LGBTQ rights, obviously, um, but also uh, pierces a huge hole, Bill, in public accommodation laws, which are the the laws that we erected um, in the the civil rights era um, to prevent businesses from discriminating um, in terms of uh, publicly available services on the basis of race, color, or creed. So what this says, in effect, is that any business can discriminate against any one class of people that they don't want to serve. They, any business can discriminate if that business is involved in a creative enterprise and has a deeply held religious objection. Now, if you listen to conservatives talk in the last week, they will tell you that creative enterprise is a bright line that is easy to draw, right? Like, Bill, you have a podcast. Your podcast is a creative enterprise. Nobody mm-hmm. uh, could force you to uh, platform uh, Ron DeSantis if if you didn't want to, right? <laughs> uh, right. Um, no, nobody could force you to talk to Stephen Miller if you didn't want to, right? Because you have a creative yeah. business. So the conservatives are saying, like, obviously, creative businesses are 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 different from kind of pure service businesses like, you know, a McDonald's, right? At the extremes, sure, there are bright line distinctions that we can make. But there are a ton of close cases that the conservatives are not talking about right now that will, again, like I said, draw this huge, blow this huge hole in public accommodation laws. Um, Take, for instance, okay, so this was a, a woman who allegedly wanted to run a graphic design website for wedding announcements, right? And we can Mm -hmm. debate whether or not graphic design is creative or not. You talk to coders and they're just like, dude, it's like HTML for dummies. (laughs) Uh, Others will will disagree, fine. Um, But you can extrapolate from there, right? Like, okay, let's bring up, let's talk about a jeweler, right? All I need you to do is put this rock into this band. That's all I need, right? Is that a creative business? The jeweler will say so. The jeweler, if the jeweler is a bigot like this woman in 303 Creative, he'll say, oh, I don't I don't fit rocks into bands unless for, for, for gay couples, right? And suddenly right. you have an exception to the public accommodation laws. What about a caterer, right? Now, I, I would argue that, like, putting food into one of those, you know, tins with the water in it so it keeps it. I don't think that's particularly creative, right? 
but let's go talk to the soup Nazi, right? Let's talk to the guy who makes the soup. Who's just like, dude, I'm a chef. My, my concoctions are creative. And I, I've decided that my God says that I can only serve soup to straight couples. That's a, that's another lawsuit. Right. And so what you see is, is all of these close cases, all of these edge cases where bigots will have the opportunity to discriminate against the LGBTQ community again and again and again and again without knowing whether or not anybody is going to stop them, right? And so if you are an LGBTQ person, I don't think a lot of people have, have, have been in a situation, I have, where you are denied basic service because of some immutable characteristic about you. Hmm. It's yeah. humiliating, right? I, 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 I you know, being a, a black man, I, you know, walking into a store and basically being told that you can't shop there, right? Because you, because they don't like it. Yeah. It's, hmm. it's a humiliating experience. And these are the humiliations that the Supreme Court has opened up again on specifically the LGBTQ community, but you know you can extrapolate much beyond there. Sure. Um, to happen in public with the vain hope that maybe one day one of these bigots will go too far and the Supreme Court will overturn that bigotry three, four, five years later. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about the affirmative action uh, decision. Again, no surprise, right? This this has been this has been they've been targeting this for, for as you say for generations. But how legally can they say that um, that it's wrong for a university to try to have a student body that reflects what the population is? Well, because legally they made it up, right? <laughs> like they, <laughs> They, they uh, the reason why they can do it goes back to how we started, Bill. It is a six-three conservative court, and they have the votes, yeah, to make yeah. up what they want. The core legal argument is that uh, uh, race consciousness in college admissions violates the Fourteenth Amendment's equal protection clause. Now, if you actually go back and look at the Fourteenth Amendment, what you find is an amendment that was passed specifically so racial restorative justice programs like affirmative action could be legalized, right? Like the the yeah. first affirmative action in this country didn't happen in the 1960s. It happened in the 1860s. It was a reconstruction era idea, right? And the people at the time, the still at the time after the Civil War, exclusively white, exclusively men. But the exclusively white men at the time even said that to have an affirmative action policy, to have a racial restorative justice policy, you needed the, the the 14th Amendment to make it constitutional. So they passed the 14th Amendment so that they ratified the 14th Amendment so that they could pass things like the 1866 Civil Rights Act. That's on the record, right? What mm-hmm. I just made, Bill, by the way, is an originalist argument. It's a it's a straight line originalist look at the public meaning from the authors of the text argument, right? But that's the originalist argument that the court not only ignored, right? John Robertson, his majority opinion, just doesn't even deal with it, just ignores it, doesn't even pretend well, to be original. Right. And the only one who really pointed that out was the Justice uh, Katanji Jackson Brown or Brown Jackson, 
right? Yes. Uh, uh, Justice Jackson made the point in her dissent. She also yeah. made the point in her oral argument. It, it's a it's a it's a great point. And it's and if and it shows to me if the conservative ideology was intellectually honest, Justice Jackson's point would have won the day because it's such a simple application of their own theory. But the fact that the originalists rejected Justice Jackson's argument shows that they are at core bad faith actors, right? And nowhere is that more obvious than in Clarence Thomas concur- Clarence Thomas's concurrence. And, and just for your listeners, if you haven't read Adam Serwer's article in the Atlantic about this, I, I, I implore you to go read it, where Adam Serwer takes apart Thomas's argument that the Freedmen's Bureau which was, again, one of those uh, 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 racial restorative justice uh, 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 policies or or programs that was instituted during Reconstruction after the passage of the 14th Amendment, explicitly because the 14th Amendment was was ratified. Mm -hmm. Thomas argues that the Freedmen's Bureau was a race-neutral term. The Freedmen's Bureau (laughs) was race-neutral, according to Clarence Thomas. And that's just, I mean, I say read Adam's article because he breaks it down when i read that part in clarence thomas's concurrence i just laughed i just laughed my ass off right because it's it's so stupid like it's like you can't (laughs) it is difficult to intellectually engage with an argument that 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 is that bad right it's like arguing with a six-year-old um but yeah so so legally that's how they did it they they made up why the 14th amendment was there they lied about what happened during reconstruction and they had six votes to do it, so they did. Right. I mean, that's the bottom line. They've got six votes, and um, Katie, bar- Katie barred the door. So you, we've talked about this before. So what what can we do about what? I mean, there is this talk about reform of the court. You know, Congress has talked about uh, they're going to have an ethics code now, or some people talk about term limits, people talking about adding more justices. What's the answer? Oh, look, I— I am 100% that we need to add more justices just just as a starting point. There are lots of reforms that I want, but the starting reform is to add a number of more a number of additional Supreme Court justices because you can't do anything else until you do that. Because all of the other reforms that one might want to do requires fundamentally Supreme Court's tacit approval of it. If not explicit approval, tacit approval, and these six conservative justices will not approve to anything that cuts their power or limits their ability to do the Republican Party's work. So if you're going to do any of the other good government reforms that people have in mind that I support, you first have to get a majority of the justices who believe that the Supreme Court needs to be reformed. And that's why court expansion is the first, it's 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 the alpha and omega of reforms, because you can't get anything else done you can't get anything else through until you have a majority of justices who want the supreme court to behave rationally so how do you can congress uh just pass a law saying we're going to add five six seven justices yup the the constitution is silent as to the number of justices on the supreme court we uh it makes it just says that we're going to have a supreme court doesn't say how many people have to sit on it. And the number of justices has, has been changed right. many times in history. We opened with six. Mm-hmm. We opened with six justices. John Adams tried to bring it back down to five. Thomas Jefferson put it back at six. Thomas Jefferson then put it at seven. 
Andrew Jackson put it at nine. Abraham Lincoln put it at 10. Then they rolled it back because uh, they hated Andrew Johnson. They rolled it back to seven. And then the Judiciary Act of 1869, which, as you say, Bill, Act of Congress, approved by the Senate, signed by the President. The Judiciary Act of 1869 set the number of justices at nine, and we've been at nine ever since, with the couple of exceptions, right? There was the year that... Mitch McConnell changed it to eight justices because right. he didn't like who was president. Right, that's that's one uh, a court court um, revocation change. Right, but the other big thing that everybody thinks about when they think about court expansion is FDR and his quote unquote failed attempt to pack the court in the 1930s. But Bill, did he fail really? Because here was the deal: FDR was losing all of his New Deal cases in front mm-hmm. of the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. He was losing right. five to four. So then he threatens to add six or seven new justices. And then all of a sudden, you know, who can say why? There's legal scholarship debate about this, but for reasons passing understanding, a justice named Owen Roberts, no relation to current Chief Justice John Roberts, <laughs> changes his mind about the New Deal programs. Hmm. And mm-hmm. FDR goes from losing to winning. So you can say court expansion failed, but put it like this. I would love to be a failed court reformer in the mold of FDR because however he quote unquote failed, he started getting his agenda through the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court looked at the numbers. Things changed. FDR, the New Deal actually happened, right? So even I think the, now I, th- I don't think the current justices are as uh what's the word i'm looking for i don't think sam alito's changing changing his mind anytime soon right Right. (laughs) yeah yeah so i think you have to actually go through with adding more justices i don't think just threatening to do it will will change any minds but court expansion is not only a thing that's been done in the past right not only is there historical precedent for it i would argue bill that it is the constitutionally preferred method of bringing the supreme court to heel what's your response to the people and i hear it all the time and i think joe biden says this right oh man if we put more on then they're just going to turn around when they're in power and they're going to put more on and you know it's just going to be an endless process of uh adding more and more justices to until we get enough votes yeah so a i think that i think that's a dumb argument and there are a couple of reasons for that so number one so what Right, you add four justices, and then Republicans win back, the, control, keep the House, win back the Senate, take the White House, and they add four more. So what? How is that any worse now? Explain to me how losing sixteen thirteen is worse than losing six three. It ain't right. Mm-hmm. So like you, you, you're already if you don't do anything, Republicans have control for the next forty fifty years. If you do do something, Republicans don't have control for at least a little bit of time, during which that time, the the uh, liberal Supreme Court might do things like, I don't know, secure voting rights, might do things like, I don't know, stop gerrymandering. And if they do those things, that'll make it very, very hard for the Republicans to win back all of government again. But even if they do, and they win back all of government again, then and they re-expand the court, then, then you're right back where you started. 
You've mm-hmm. lost nothing. You've had the opportunity to gain something. So that's number one for why the argument is dumb. The other reason why I think the argument is dumb is in the kind of worst case slippery slope scenario that people allegedly are worried about, what happens is that each new presidential administration, every time there's a whole control of government by one party or the other, they have to add Supreme Court justices in order to make sure that their agenda uh, gets upheld in the in the courts, right? You mm-hmm. know what that sounds like to me, Bill? That sounds like democracy. That sounds <laughs> like people's votes mattered and the party that won actually gets to govern. That's what that sounds like, right? This idea that we can only function if nine unelected, unaccountable people tell us which laws we're allowed to have is not how this is supposed to work. It's not how a republic is supposed to work. We're supposed to have some measure of control over our laws. They're not supposed to be handed down to us from on high by, again, people who cannot be voted out of office and who have no, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, later, ethical standards. No, that's not how it was supposed to work. So if, again, in, in the worst case scenario where it's just an endless tit for tat, tit for tat, where right, and right. you end up with a... 50-person court or a 100-person court or a 150-person court, if the court is going to act like a super legislature, then it should be responsive to the votes of the people like a super legislature would be. All right. You got my vote. You convinced me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned the ethics. How important is it that the Supreme Court just refuses to adopt uh, a, um, you know, a an enforceable code of ethics, if you will. And I guess the, the the companion question is, have we ever seen a justice as corrupt as Clarence Thomas? I, I'm not enough of a historian to know if there's ever been a justice as corrupt as Clarence Thomas. Um, I feel confident saying there hasn't been a justice more corrupt than Clarence <laughs> Thomas, right? Yeah. Like Clarence Thomas has reached some kind of like unofficial ceiling in terms of Corruption, I believe, right? Uh, uh, how important is it, Bill? Let, let's let's do it this way. Next term, one of the big cases that's already on the docket is a case called Moore v. United States. It's about the 16th Amendment, which for those playing along at home, that's the federal income tax amendment. Mm. And it's mm. a challenge to a Trump-era tax law. I mean, one of the only taxes that Trump actually authorized, which was trying to discourage people from holding their money offshore, right? So that you could tax corporate profits, even if they were held in offshore accounts, right? And the argument is that no, 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 the term realization in the 16th Amendment that you can tax profits when they're realized does not apply essentially to pass through entities like LLCs and other corporate structures that you don't realize the the money therefore you can't be taxed on the money until it actually shows up like you know in your paycheck right now who does that help who wants that right that is that is every billionaire wants that right every billionaire wants to because it's not really because this case really isn't about the trump tax it's about the proposals for the wealth tax right that come out of the progressive wing of the democratic party right so much mm-hmm. so that, like, even in their briefs, the people arguing against the Trump era tax are bringing up the potential of a wealth tax, right? Right. Again, who cares about that? Well, I'll tell you who cares about that. Exactly the same kind of people 
who this month are taking Clarence Thomas out on their yacht and taking Sam Alito fishing. Mm -hmm. Because Harlan Crow or whatever wealthy billionaire you want to name, they don't have to have an active case in front of the Supreme Court where their name is on the docket to have an interest in how these judges rule. And I promise you, this summer, what is happening is the conservative justices are being lobbied by their billionaire friends on exactly this case. Right. They're being told by their billionaire friends just how important it is to stop this uh, Trump era thing so that they can avoid the coming, a coming wealth tax should progressives ever have any kind of power in this country. That's what's happening all summer. Now, mm-hmm. whether or not people think that's corrupt, I cannot tell them. But I can tell you this. Those justices ain't talking to me. They're not, <laughs> right? They're right. not spending the summer with Bernie Sanders, all right? They're not spending the summer with AOC. The people who are allowed to lobby those conservatives are exclusively wealthy, rich Republicans. People who have an alternative view do not get that kind of time with the Supreme right. Court justices this summer. The justices are spending their time with members of the Horatio Alger Society, right? Right. <laughs> As the New York Times documented uh, with Clarence, Clarence Thomas uh, and his buddy-buddy relationship with them as a member of the Horatio Alger Society. Uh, you know, we can go on and on about with the Supreme Court, uh, L.A., but I, I want to take, we got to take a quick break here. When we come back, uh, I can't let you go without asking you about Donald Trump, all the legal mess that he's into, and where you think we're going with this, and whether there's any light at the end of the tunnel for Donald Trump, or someone says, is the light at the end of the dun- tunnel for Donald Trump an in- oncoming train right, <laughs> heading his way? I'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Well, I think it's fitting for today's podcast to mention that there are several organizations that kind of serve as a watchdog on the Supreme Court for all the rest of us. But one of the most effective in my experience is definitely the Constitutional Accountability Center, headed by our good friend Elizabeth Widra. The Constitutional Accountability Center was founded in 2008 for this mission, number one, to make sure that the courts understand that the Constitution is a progressive document, and two, to make real the rights and freedoms promised in the Constitution for all Americans. Hey, nothing better than that. So I urge you, uh, check out the Constitutional Accountability Center at their website, theusconstitution.org, theusconstitution.org, and support their good work in any way you can. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you 
where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, great to be joined today by Ellie Mistel. You know him as a justice correspondent for The Nation magazine, author of uh, one of my favorite recent books, Allow Me to Retort, The Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, and now host of a new podcast called Contempt of Court, which just debuted. Uh, Ellie, before we get into Donald Trump, uh, where can people find the podcast and uh, what do you, what's it all about? Oh, it's wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Uh, it should there be on Spotify go. and Stitcher and all that kind of stuff. And it's about what we talked about in the first segment, Bill. I, I go through kind of each particular Supreme Court reform proposal, whether it's uh, uh, court expansion, term limits, ethics reform, jurisdiction stripping. I kind of explain how those reforms are supposed to work from a kind of a, a theory perspective. But then we also try to talk to politicians and people who have kind of skin in the game to talk about how close any of these reforms are to actually happening. So I've had the opportunity to interview congressmen like uh, Jamal Bowman, um, Mm -hmm. Hank Johnson from Georgia, who has the ethics bill on the floor right now. Uh, So we tried to do a little bit of theory, a little bit of of practicality, and just give people an understanding of, you know, what what people actually mean when we talk about Supreme Court reform. Yeah, great. Well, congratulations. Welcome to the World Podcast, and uh, you and I will be up on the, all the same platforms. So it's good to good to have your company. So let, let's take a look at Donald Trump and his legal legal woes. I mean, twice indicted already, uh, probably facing coming indictments in Georgia, New York State, uh, the Department of Justice for January sixth. But a lot of people feel you know he's he's just been able to escape everything so far, and he'll escape all of this. Do you think he's in? Serious legal jeopardy? I mean, look, Bill, if he was a regular person, yeah. <laughs> if he was any other man, sure. Yeah. But 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 Trump has this ability to um, get away with crime. And there are two big reasons why he has an ability to get away with crime. One, the Republican Party continues to be in the tank for his criminal activities, right? Like they refuse to hold their own accountable. And so he faces no political consequences for his crimes or alleged crimes or would-be crimes or whatever crime he's committing right now. Because one thing we know about Trump is that, you know, he's always doing, he's always has some crime in the fire, right? Mm-hmm. The other reason that, that he's been able to get away with it uh, so kind of completely has been, I would argue, prosecuted, prosecutorial misconduct over the course of his life, right? There have been various times where various prosecutors have had the ability to take a shot at him and let him off the hook, let him get away with it. Right. Um, didn't think he was, you know, uh, big enough to to prosecute back in you know the eighties and nineties, whatever the reason. Um, didn't want to go after his children. So it's the second factor that's changing. I was right? going to say, is that is that true today? Is that still true today? It's the second factor that's changing. I, I think that you know I had my worries about Jack Smith. I mean, I've been. I've been hurt so many times before, <laughs> Bob Mueller, and you know, yeah, I just couldn't love again. But everything Jack Smith has done has been on point, and mm-hmm. and, and and it does seem like Jack Smith is not afraid of this man. Um, that Jack Smith is a serious man, and that he's coming after him. The problem is that Jack Smith was 
is a latecomer to the scene because Merrick Garland slow walked this entire process. And yep. you were talking yep. about there's been excellent uh, uh, reporting on how Garland basically tried to avoid saying the T word Trump. for a whole year, right? For a, for whole, a whole year. year. Yeah. Right. That year has consequences because we are now talking about the potential prosecution, um, the indictment of Donald Trump, and the potential trial of Donald Trump in the context of 2023-2024 as opposed to the context of 2021-2022. And that's huge because what it means is that let's take the espionage case, right? Um, he's been indicted. Wonderful. When do we think he's going to go to trial, right? When do we think he's going to actually have to have to mm -hmm. sit in a courtroom and defend himself? Um, certainly not this year, right. right? So now we're pushing into to 2024. You know what happens on February 13th, 2024? The New Hampshire primary is what happens at the beginning of 2024, right? Bill, I think it is unlikely that Jack Smith might want to. He might be willing to do it. I think it is unlikely that we try the presumptive Republican nominee before the general election. And I think it's almost impossible that we'll try him after the Republican National Convention, which I believe goes off July mm -hmm. 11th something, um, 2024. If he actually wins the Republican nomination, I just think that it's impossible to try him between July and the general election in November. I just don't see how that happens. How do you even select a jury? In that right. situation, just take again, just taking the espionage case. If you if you're tr you're trying him in Florida, right? Florida is a battleground state. Every single campaign at Trump's runs in Florida is a form of jury tampering if you really want to get into it. So, mm -hmm. I just think, especially that he's got his own judge, Eileen Cannon presiding over the case. I think that's what's going to happen is that they're going to go through discovery Trump's lawyers are going to we're going to get into next year. Trump's lawyers are going to say, look, we are we we cannot get this done. We cannot have a fair trial while our client is running for president. It's an unprecedented situation. And I think most likely Eileen Cannon will agree with that. And if she doesn't, they'll appeal it. And eventually they will get back to the same six, three conservative court that we talked about earlier. So I just think that it's not going to happen until before the election, which means that to defeat Trump in the courtroom, we are going to have to defeat Trump in the polling booth once again. So what you're saying is he could be nominated if the Republicans are dumb enough, I, I would add. He could be elected. He could be sworn into a second term and yet facing indictments um, across the board, right? And then maybe convicted of them, could he be as president? Or would he again fall under the that security blanket that the president has? He would certainly argue that he's under the security blanket that the president has. He would say that after yeah. he's elected, if, if he wins the election, he'll say that he can't be touched as long as he's president. Right, yeah. And then, by the way, he'll, if he wins again, Bill, make, trust me, if he wins again and he lives... He will run for a third term. He will make an argument that the 22nd Amendment that, that limits the president to two terms doesn't apply to him because it's not a consecutive term. It will be a ridiculous argument, but he's won those ridiculous arguments before.
Wait a minute. Yeah. He can't run for a third term because he'd be over 80, and we can't have a, anybody running for president over 80, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that argument just disappeared. Right? <laughs> so I think it's, what you're if saying— If Trump wins uh, again, he's not leaving, is my point. Yeah, and I think the bottom line, you, you said it so well, is the way to beat Trump is probably not in the courtroom but at the ballot box, right? Makes it all the more important. I mean, that's because of the delay, because of Merrick Garland's delay, we are forced to contend with him once again at the ballot box before we can uh, contend with him in the courtroom, most likely. However, the to, to be positive for a second, um, huh, if we do please. defeat him at the ballot box, I do think that the light at, that 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 light is an oncoming train. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Unlike last time. If we defeat him in November this time, um, I do think there will be handcuffs waiting for him on the back end of that loss. All right. And on that hopeful note, Ellie <laughs> 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 Mistel, it's so great to join up with you again. Uh, thanks for all your great work. And uh, we will look forward to, uh, to hearing the podcast and joining you uh, what's it, once a week, right? Yeah, once a week for the summer. Okay, good enough. We'll talk to you then. Thanks, Ellie, for your time today. Thanks a lot, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Ellie Mistel. Uh, but I got to tell you, again, I really loved his book and recommend it to you. Allow me to retort the black guy's guide to the Constitution. And of course, happy to see that uh, Ellie's joining the podcast world with his new podcast, Contempt of Court. Check out the episode notes to today's podcast uh, on an easy way that you can find Ellie's podcast and follow that as well as following the Bill Press 5. Uh, that's it for today. Thanks to Ali Mistal. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Have a great week and come back and see us on Friday for this week's Reporters Roundtable. President Biden off to NATO. Uh, Donald Trump could face indictments in Fulton County, Georgia, as early as this week. We'll follow all the news from Washington and all the political news around the country with our three, three political reporters on Friday, our Reporters Roundtable. Again, thanks for joining us. We'll see you Friday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.